Thank you, guys. I need a reminder. The Lord's love is strong. Amen? Stronger than our doubt. Yeah, say amen. How about that? Stronger than your trouble? Stronger than your illness? Stronger than your suffering? Amen. All right. Kiddos, if you'd like to be dismissed, you can follow uh, Grace out for Children's Church. All right. As those guys are going out, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 2. And as we're uh, talking about Hosea chapter 2 or getting ready to as you're going there, um, let me make you aware of a couple things. Um, Margie's son, uh, Brandon, is in Afghanistan in the midst of all the, uh, our uh, brave men and women who are uh, stationed there to bring peace to that area and rule of law. And uh, you've seen all the things on TV that are going on, and, uh, and they're kind of in the midst of all that uh, um, protests and, and uh, whatnot. So anyway, y'all keep Brandon and our, uh, our, our men and women in your prayers, please, that the Lord would just bring peace there. To that area, and uh, that we'd get a chance to bring our uh, bring our boys and girls home. So, appreciate y'all's prayers for Brandon and, and his units and and comrades in arms there. So, um, anyway, as we're in Hosea chapter two this morning, um, I wanted to I'm gonna we're gonna talk about a we're gonna go back about 750 years or 700 years prior to Hosea. Hosea was written about 750 B.C., but um, he's going to refer to a time back about 1400 B.C. He's going to refer to a time about 700 years prior to, what he's, to his uh, actual time here. He's going to be talking today about something that happened in, in uh, Joshua chapter 7. And let me tell you what happened. Um, in, you know, the Israelites escaped from Egypt. The Lord delivered them by his mighty hand out of Egypt. They went and they, they, they grumbled then against the Lord. He caused them to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. After 40 years, he allowed them to go the long way into the promised land. You remember, let me stand like you would be looking. They cross over. He drives up the Jordan in front of them, and they cross over from the west into the promised land. And as they go over, the very first thing they do is they consecrate themselves in Gilgal. And you remember, you know, you, you, anybody seen that deal on the History Channel about all the brilliant uh, military planning that, of Joshua? Um, well, they skipped this part, but he circumcised all the grown men there in Gilgal before their first battle. Um, maybe not brilliant um, um, military strategy, but um, anyway, nonetheless, consecrated them before the Lord because out in the desert, there was a whole generation there that had not been circumcised. So all the men of the, uh, of the Israelites were circumcised there in Gilgal. They did, consecrated themselves to the Lord there in Gilgal, and then the very next thing they do is they fight the battle of Jericho, but you and I have learned from songs that we've sing before that it was actually the Lord that fit the battle of Jericho, right? And he brought down the walls. The very next thing that happens is the very next city in the promised land for them to go up against as they're traveling west, conquering the land of the promised land, the land of the Canaanites. The very next city they go against is called Ai, all right? 
Now, AI is so small that they go into, they send some spies, and some of the spies come back and says, we don't even need the whole army for this town. We can just send a couple of thousand people up, and we've got this one. And after the high of Jericho and their consecration before the Lord and finally getting to enter the promised land, they send two or 3,000 people up, men, uh, soldiers up. I'm sorry, it was actually 3,000. They send up 3,000 men in Joshua chapter 7. And what happens? They get routed. There's uh, 36 of their own men are killed, and actually they turn and run, and they run back toward where Gilgal is. But before they get to Gilgal, they all retreat into this area that's called, that's taken on the name, the Valley of Achor. Well, the reason we call it the Valley of Achor is this next part of the story is they then go to the Lord, and, and, and Joshua uh, falls there in front of the Holy of Holies and, and just prostrates himself there in front of the Lord. And, and just asking, why? What's happened? It's better for us never have crossed the Jordan and never to have come into this place. And the Lord answers him, you call up family members, I'm sorry, you call up clans or what do you call them, tribes, and then clans and the family and then men, and I'll show you what the problem is. And sure enough, the next morning they get up and they're going to consecrate themselves to the Lord again. It doesn't last very long, this consecration to the Lord, does it? For the Israelites, nor for me, it seems like. Do you have that problem? Okay. Anyway, it doesn't last very long for them either, part of human history, part of our fallen human nature. Um, they go and, and he starts to call out uh, a tribe and then a, a clan and then a family and then a man, and his name is Achan, A-C-H-A-N, Achan. Okay, Achan says, I did what the Lord said not to do. And he made confession there right in front of Joshua and all the people, and he said, I took gold and silver and a Babylonian robe when the Lord said, destroy everything. And he said, but I took some of the plunder. Okay, so what happens next is Achan and all his family are, uh, are executed there in the valley of Achor. It would then kind of take on, on his name. But the reason is, is of course, because um, several of, of the Israelite men were killed because of Achan's sin, and they go into this valley, and that's where the, basically they were repelled and routed. And that became known as the Valley of Achor. The, name, the, the word Achor in Hebrew means trouble. They go back into the, the Valley of Trouble, and there the Lord deals with them. Their sin is punished, and then they receive his favor once again. Okay. Here in just a minute, we're going to read about the Valley of Achor, but I want to remind you just for a second, it, almost 700 years later, this valley that they go in is still referred to as the Valley of Trouble because of what happened that day, because the Israelites were, were defeated, because the Lord's hand was against them because of the sin of Achan, and they were there in the Valley of Trouble, okay? Now, fast forward about 650 years, and you have Hosea writing, uh, in Hosea chapter 2. We're just going to read a couple of verses here and a few verses in Corinthians here in just a moment. But in, second, in, in Hosea chapter 2, you guys remember the uh, story of Hosea, right? Hosea married a woman. What was her name? Aunt Gomer. Or Gomer and uh, kind of like you remember that show back in the 70s, Gomer Pyle. Um, but um, uh, her name was Gomer. And what was her occupation? She was a prostitute. God had, had Hosea marry Gomer as a metaphor or as a picture for what the Israelites had been like with God. He says, it's like you're an unfaithful wife, or maybe a little worse than unfaithful. I'm assuming a prostitute would be much worse than an unfaithful wife. But he says, you're like a prostitute, uh, me married to a prostitute, and even though I show you kindness and I show you my love, you're always pursuing other men always pursuing, always chasing after other men. And he talked about their idolatrous heart. 
But in Hosea chapter 2, there's this beautiful picture of God restoring his love and this steadfast love, this said love, you remember from, from, from Hebrew, this, this loving devotion that he has for his people. And no matter what they do, he still loves them and he's still going to show and demonstrate his love for them. And so in Hosea chapter 2, he's telling about how he's going to restore Israel, and he's, re- and he's talking about her as though she was an un- his unfaithful wife. Therefore, in verse 14 of Hosea chapter 2, Therefore, I am going, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. Let me ask you this morning just real quickly, why in the world would he lead her into a desert? Why wouldn't he re- lead her into a garden, some plush place where he could show her his kindness and speak tenderly to her? Is a, is a desert any place for a lady, any place for a woman? Uh, I, I don't think so. Pardon me, that was sexist. Uh, but uh, yeah, but still, I stand by it. I don't think so. Uh, uh, but here's the deal is that what he's telling them and what he's telling um, Israel in particular is he's saying, I'm going to bring you to an end of all this. I'm going to bring you to an end. I'm going to take away all of you, these false lovers. I'm going to bring, take away all of these men who are being false to you. All the things that you, they've given you, I'm going to strip away one by one until you're there and alone in the desert. And may I suggest to you it's for this reason, to make it very simple for Israel to hear from her true husband the one who has loved her truly and wholly and has this devoted love toward her and not some self-centered lust toward her, but has a real and true love for her. And he says, I'm going to take you out in the desert and there I'm going to allure you and I'm going to speak tenderly to you. Isn't that a great picture? Let me suggest to you, though, this is difficult for us to hear, but God will often lead you out in the desert so that there are no other confusion. There's no other things that are vying for our attention. But we've come to the end of all of our idols, and they can't do anything more for us. And we lead us out of the desert, and he says, now finally that you're not looking anywhere else, I'm going to speak tenderly to you. I'm going to restore your relationship to me, and I'm going to show you this love that I've had for you that you've just been ignoring all this time because you've been so caught up in all this other stuff. But in the desert, finally she'll hear It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Beautiful romancing God we have, isn't it? Isn't he? Just beautiful. There in verse 15, there I will give her back her, her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor, we know this term, what's this mean? The valley of trouble, a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up and of Egypt. And I'm going to jump back to the middle of uh, verse 15 here in just a moment. But notice what happens is that it ends with, her returning to the Lord and then singing for joy at the relationship that's been restored because the Lord, no matter what, continually pursues her and no matter what, shows a loving devotion to her because he won't give up on her because his love is strong. Amen? She'll sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt, the days that she'd been released from her prison. She will sing again like that because she'll be released from all these false loves. But in the middle of verse 15, I, I love what it says, I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of, De- of Achor a door of hope. We're going to pause there for just a minute and talk about this. He's saying what the Lord is saying, I'm going to take that door, uh, that valley of trouble and I'm going to turn it into, instead for you, I'm going to turn it into a door of hope. 
so that all of the trouble that she's had, all the trouble, all the suffering, all the falseness that Israel's been in, he says, I'm going to take that and I'm going to make it a door of hope for you. And I need to explain just a little bit more about um, th- this valley. This valley, as they crossed into the, as they crossed into the promised land in, in Joshua's day, this valley was the valley that led and opened up then into all of the promised land. And basically what he's saying here is, although you face trouble there in the valley of trouble, I opened, that, that, that trouble became for you an opening into all the things that I had promised for you and all the things that I've held for you, all the things that I'd prepared for you in my rest there in the promised land. Do you see the picture? The Lord saying, I'm going to take your trouble and I'm going to turn it into hope. This is something unique for us believers, isn't it? Something unique for us. It is the plan and the, um, the practice of God over and over and over throughout the scriptures, throughout Christian history, to be taking trouble and suffering and pain and illness and persecution and sickness and turning it into him revealing himself to his people and saying, but I have something, I have a much greater grace for you where our trouble becomes an avenue for God to give us even greater grace than we've ever known before. Amen? Now, I've been saying this all month in the month of February, but every one of us could stand up today and tell a story of something that you saw as bad that God intended for your good because he wanted to show you in the midst of that desert place, in the midst of that trouble, he wanted to open it up for you. And so, but look what I've been reserving for you. Look what I have prepared for you. Look what I have for you in my rest. Look what I intended for you all along. But it took you going through trouble to be able to see it and to be able to find it and to go out into that desert place for you to be able to see me for who I am, your true husband, your only true love, the one who is devoted to you, has, a, has devoted all of his life to you, and will, his love will never fail. Amen. I talked about this, I guess, the first week of February, but, um, I, I, but I know this is true. When I walked through sorrow, God showed me peace that passes understanding. When I walked through sin, he showed me amazing grace. When I walked through fear, he showed me his concern and his sovereignty for me. When I walked through disappointment, he reminded me of his unconditional love. When my world seemed out of control, he showed me that he is the rock. When my pursuits came up empty, he showed me all of his fullness. And over and over again. How would I know God's peace if I had not needed his peace in the moment of despair? How would I know his love if I hadn't been looking for it and hadn't come to the point that I needed it? How would I have known his sovereignty had I not come to the point that it just seemed like everything in my life was spinning out of control? It's at those times that God takes trouble and opens them up into greater in, in avenues of greater grace for us. God intends all our trouble to be a door into greater grace and greater revelation 
of his sufficiency for us. I don't know how more succinctly to put that, but let me expand on it just a little bit. It's not just that in the midst of those circumstances, we just, you know, continue to have hope. Listen, we have hope because we know who he is. We know how he acts. We know what he's done. And, and I wish and you wish it was like this, is that in the, one, in the moment that I'm in trouble, I pray to the Lord and it's like lightning, you know. He shows up and everything's fixed and it's just not like that for us, is it? But over time, as we look back on a situation that we never thought we could make it through, we can look back and say, I know I only made it because he is sovereign. I know I only made it because he was carrying me. I know I only made it because of his steadfast love for me. I wish it was like lightning, but it's not a lot of the time. It's just not. Um. Let me, uh, let's see, the next part here is, and isn't this a beautiful picture? I don't want you to lose this, but that valley of trouble, God said, that's a door of hope. I know it looks like trouble, but really, on the other side, what I'm doing on the other side of that, you, you, can't, even, you, can't, even, you can't even imagine. You can't even imagine the love that I'm going to show you. You can't imagine how I'm going to reveal myself to you and, and how I'm sufficient for you, how I am enough for you. Amen. Okay. Now, what I don't want to do today is I don't want to take and talk about your trouble and I and my trouble and pretend like it's nothing. Our problems are very real. You know, the problems that you face, the problems that I face, these are very real. And, and you know, sickness, illness, that's something that can affect not only my body, but it can, it can, it can drag down my soul. I mean, that's serious. When we're in financial problem and you're consumed with worry, when there's phone calls for debt collectors or, or whatever you're going through, those can drag down your soul, can it? Uh, uh, whenever you have, um, um, you and your, your spouse aren't getting along, your husband, your wife, when you're not getting along, that can affect the whole rest of your life. I, and, and I don't mean to say at all that these are somehow uh, small problems. No, these are large issues. These are big problems. Um, that we go through, and I don't mean at all to make them very small. And matter of fact, I'm fixing to make it a little worse because I want to say this. That's not even, whatever you're going through, whatever I'm going through, that's not even our worst problem. I, I, you know, and, and you, you guys know, we, we try to, we're fairly uh, transparent in the Crump family. You guys know what we've been going through with Jessica and, and the, the potential she has, well, I guess, um, of, of, of at least some seizures or epilepsy maybe full-blown and and uh, you guys know the struggles we go through with Rebecca and Brent and I and our health, and somehow, uh, man, our guts are just messed up. I don't know how else to say it, but we're just messed up. We just are. And, um, and, and you guys know that, and thank God Jonathan's healthy, um, so we're just hanging on to that. But um, way to go, buddy. We're going to put him in a glass bubble or something, make sure he's, make sure he's safe. But uh, anyway, but you, you know, you guys know that, and, and, and you know, and Brent and I, you know, I, I, and, and I don't want to say that troubles aren't, aren't, aren't a big deal because, you know, Brent and I cry over these things. We, you know, we, we don't want these things for our children, and nobody does, right? No one wants these things for their kids. Well, you know, if I had my druthers, we wouldn't go through, be going through the things that we're going through um, either. And, uh, but here's the deal is that these aren't even our worst problems. <laughs> I have a much, much larger problem than this. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Okay, so just hold on. All right. My worst problem is I'm a fallen creature. 
and I, I don't know how I can explain this to us all very well today, um, but what that means is, is that my heart is warped, and it doesn't desire God, but it desires the creation instead of our God. I'm Romans chapter 1. I mean, you know, I'm guilty like all the rest of creation. Um, my mind is warped because in my mind, I, I know this tendency of my heart to want the creation and the created things rather than the creator, and my mind is okay with that. You, you with me? My mind is so bent and so warped that I buy into these things that, that something else is more important or more significant to me than God. That's fallen human sinful nature, and that is my greatest problem. This gut thing, you know, one day it's just not going to matter. It's just not. Uh, um, and, and now, I'm not to say that it's not painful today. Not to say that, that there aren't tears. That Brent and I shed tears this week or last week over Jessica and, and this, you know, condition, this, whatever this is. Well, we do. It, it's painful and it's hurtful. And I, I'm not trying to minimize that. But what I'm saying is, is that we have an even greater issue than all of these things is that I don't see God properly because of my fallen nature. My eyes are, are corrupt. My, my heart is, is twisted. My mind is, is, is bent. And everything in the world that could be wrong in my heart, in my view of God, is just that. It's just wrong. Uh-huh. That's my biggest problem. That's my greatest issue. It, it is. And, and not just me, but every single one of us um, are in this place um, warped by sin, minds that don't comprehend. We don't follow God. We don't seek Him. Um, and that's what was lost at the fall. But the good... Yeah, well, let's see. So anyway, let's, let me read from, uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you have your Bible with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be... I'm going to skip around just a little bit there in verses 16 through 18. And then we're going to jump down a little bit. 16 through 18 says... Therefore, we do not lose heart. Let me tell you what's happening here. In, uh, in, the, in Corinth, there's persecution going on of believers, and there's some guys that are, like, ready to jump ship. There's some of the believers that are there that are ready to put their hope somewhere else other than in Jesus Christ, okay? And so Paul's writing to them in the midst of this persecution they're going through, and he's telling them to hold on, hold on in, in Corinthians. So um, they're going through persecution. And this is not some minor thing. Anyone been persecuted for their faith lately? I mean, really, anybody been threatened to be thrown in jail or lose their job or kicked out of their family, kicked out of their synagogue? Uh, this, that, I mean, this, these are the things that were going on for these guys. 16 through 18, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Let me pause there for just a minute. What's he saying here is that outwardly we are wasting away. This body and this physical stuff that we're going through is just coming to an end. It's just all going to end, and it's not going to be a pretty end. It's going to be a wasting away of it all. But listen how he ends that verse. But he says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being, what? Renewed day by day. Here's the hope of the gospel is right here. My greatest need, Jesus Christ is taken care of. Amen. Are you with me? My greatest need, my greatest problem, Jesus Christ has dealt with and is dwelling in, and is dealing with in me, indwelling me right now. Day after day, trouble after trouble, illness after illness, he is renewing me on the inside. All right? Okay. Um, let me talk about that just for a second. 
Um, he is renewing us uh, day by day. Uh, the greatest need that I have is for healing, yeah, but the greatest need I have for healing is my soul. You remember we read Psalm 23 this week, and you remember what he said? He says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, lies, lay, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Can I suggest to you that's what we need more than anything? I need my soul restored. I need to be able to look to God and see him more for who he is. I need, to, I need my heart turned toward him. I need my mind toward, turned toward him so that I can see him for who he is. And I need that work of restoration and transformation and sanctification and some other word that ends in Asian. I need that happening in my life. I need it because without it, the hope that I have is what? That this world's going to solve all my problems? That wealth is going to solve all my problems? That medicine is going to solve all our issues? That doctor is going to somehow save us? No, none of that's true. None of that's true. There is only one Savior, and it is the Lord. Amen? All right. Okay. Oh, boy, i got to get going. Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, he's talking about wasting away. This is not some small thing, but he's talking about, but we are being renewed. Even while we're wasting away, we are being renewed. Um, and we need the Lord to transform us. Okay, in the second part, verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles. Do you see what he went from? He went from wasting away, which sounds really bad, and then he went to light and momentary problems. Those don't sound so bad. So what's happened here? It's perspective. He's changed perspective from verse 16 to verse 17. In verse 16, he says, we're wasting away, and in verse 17, but compared to the renewal that's happening in me, Compared to the spiritual things that the Lord's doing on my behalf, these are light and momentary troubles. Heartache, heart-wrenching problems that we're going through. But in comparison to what the Lord God is doing and what he's got planned for us, light and momentary. For all our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us what? An eternal glory. I just can't believe that's true except that I was reading the Bible, so I know it's true. The eternal glory, here's the deal. You know, God is in his being is glorious. So, and he is our father, and so we are his children, and he passes on an inheritance. What do parents give their children? It's what they have. What does God have? Glory. What does he have to give us in our inheritance? Glory. You're going to get some of that. How about that? Sign me up. All right, eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is, on, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. You tell me, what are you going through that's temporary? What, are you, what is it? Oh, boy, I just stunned you into silence. Sorry about that. Broken back. Terrible, but temporary. What else? Oh, you all shine. You acting shy now. Uh-huh. What else? Anger. Going through anger. Yeah. Temporary. What else? Separated from your best friend? Yeah. Terrible, but temporary. All these things of this world, all these things of this life, all these things are temporary, but we have something eternal waiting for us, and it's glory. Okay, th- here's the last thing. So what in the world, why, how, what do we do about this? How do we do this? Especially, you know, he says we fix our eyes not on what is seen. I'm sorry. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is, is eternal. So he says... Fix your eyes on something you can't see. That's difficult for me. I'm kind of a, you know, I'm kind of a concrete kind of a guy. You know what I mean? Give me something more than that, please. 
Uh, fix your eyes on something you can't see. How do you do that? Let me just tell you really quickly. Um, let me tell you how your day goes. You get up in the morning and you can't find your keys and you're running late to work and you're frustrated. You're like, oh, I'm so stupid. Why can't I find my keys? Who moved my keys? Anybody see my keys? And you get really frustrated and you haven't even got out of the house yet, right? You're driving to work, you're driving the kids to school or whatever you're doing and there are people all over and it, you don't know, you know, who knows where these people come from, but when you're in a real hurry, they are everywhere, aren't they? Yeah, they just come out of the woodworks and they're blocking your way everywhere that you want to go. And so I'm not going to say what you say in your car when no one else can hear, but these thoughts are running through your heads about their intelligence and things, aren't they? Or maybe about their moms and stuff, which I'm not even going to get into. But you, you're having all these thoughts as you're going, and you haven't even gotten to work or to class or whatever yet. You go into class and you realize you've forgotten more stuff, and can I tell you what's happening? Your circumstances have just taken over your day. And we let it happen day after day. I've been contemplating this stuff for a month. I let it happen yesterday. We get so caught up and so frustrated or so bent by these things that Paul calls light and momentary troubles, but he also says they're like wasting us away. We get so caught up in them. Can I suggest to you too, just real quickly before we go here, is that you don't let those things monopolize your head. You don't let them monopolize your thoughts. You don't let your circumstances and your frustration monopolize all of your thinking all day long. You don't let those things that just dig into your emotions and just get you twisted and angry and frustrated. Among who I am the worst, I'm terrible at this. I'll just tell you, I was preaching to myself all yesterday and and today and maybe for the last month or so. Uh, But I am terrible at this. I'll let something get to me and, man, I can't let it go, which is why I have stomach problems, by the way. But anyway... Um, but, but I'm terrible at this, but I let those things take over. Don't let them monopolize your thoughts. Don't let them monopolize your mind because you know something much greater than, than the people around you do, don't you? Is that, you know, these are light and momentary troubles. Compared to the glory that I'm going to receive from my Heavenly Father, compared to being in His presence, compared to the, the love that that that, that devoted love that God showed me, especially through the cross of Jesus Christ, that means something, doesn't it? That really matters. Can I suggest to you this morning, one of the things that we need as believers is a discipline toward our thought about taking captive every thought, and I'm talking about in your own head. Don't let those little things drive away your joy. Don't let those little things drive away um, what's going on. And let me say this also. Don't let the big things drive away your joy. Now, there's a, we're going through a lot of stuff in our body, church body here lately, and I, I, this is really timely. I was, I've been planning on preaching through this stuff for a couple of months now, so that it's time in the middle of it. Just oh, You guys are just perfect object lessons, um, which I know you were like, oh, yes, that's what I was, yeah, th- I, this is exactly what I wanted. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but, but um, yeah, you can't let those things monopolize your, your thoughts and your mind. Uh, would you put that up from uh, the gentleman named C.J. Mahaney in his book called The Cross-Centered Life? He says this, We sit back and let our view of God and life be shaped by constantly shifting feelings about our ever-changing circumstances. We choose to passively listen to our circumstances when we need to start talking back. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, We think with our feelings. We allow our feelings to guide our thinking. Emotions are a wonderful gift from God, and our relationship with God which should bring uh, to our lives very strong and godly affections. However, our emotions should not be vested with final authority. What is he saying here? Your emotions should not tell you what kind of day you're going to have. 
Um, matter of fact, those kind of thoughts and that kind of final authority should be reserved for God's word in your life. And this is, the, here's the point, here's, here's the kind of the end, end deal is, well, here, let me go somewhere else here before we go there. Um, when you're going through those times and you're going through those circumstances, you're so caught up in what's going wrong in your life. And I know things are going wrong in your life. I know they are. They go wrong in the Crump's life too. This is not really, Lord, how we'd plan this whole deal. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, here, but here we are. Um, but what we act like, you ready, Jason? But we act like in those times that Jesus' work on the cross and God's kindness toward us have no real bearing on our lives. Is that true? I, I, do, I mean, when we get so caught up in everything going wrong and we lose sight of what's happened for us and that, that we have a God who's like that, that faithful husband despite her, his unfaithful wife who says, I want to show you my love and I know you've walked away from me and I know you've ignored me and I know you've gone and chased other pursuits, but I'm still here. I'm going to show you my loving devotion for you and I'm just waiting for the time till I can get you by yourself so I can actually speak to you I have no idea where I was going from that. But anyway, you know where I'm at here. Uh, and we act like in those times, we act like we have, like none of that matters. And I suggest to you this morning, this is the thing that only, this is the only thing that always matters. These are the things that only matter all the time. This is it. Everything else is going to come and go, right? Everything else in a few years, the things that we're really struggling with, the things that really have us worried, the things that really have us angry or upset or frustrated, in a couple of years, they're just going to be gone. They just are. The thing that really matters is I have hope. You have hope. Your trouble is a doorway where God would say, let me show you my peace. Let me, let me give to you uh, my, my unconditional love. Let me show you how I am sovereign even when your world seems to be completely out of control. And let me put you, let me show you that you're still right here protected by my hand. Amen. Valley of Acor, door of hope. Let me encourage you to take back your mind, take back your thoughts. Your sin's been atoned for. You're being renewed. There is waiting for you eternal glory. And, and, and here's my, my, my thought, my prayer, is that in the midst of those times where things are just one thing after the other, frustrating, discouraging, dragging you down, in the midst of all that, I, I, I want you to remember, my prayer for you is to remember, but you know what really matters? My hope is in the Lord. It always has been. Brent and I had a little bit of a frustrating time last night, and I let this get to me, even though this is, I've been kind of thinking about this particular sermon for months now. I let it get to me. We, we, had, uh, we went to see a doctor about Jessica's epilepsy deal, and he was supposed to prescribe something for us, and he forgot. And so I, Brenda, just by chance, happened to run into him at Sam's. We thought, ah. The Lord's providence. So Brenda just mentioned, hey, you, you forget that? No, oh, yeah, sure enough, I forgot. Sorry, he apologized. No big deal. We love the guy, um, fellow believer, love him. Uh, and so he said, well, I'll go by the office and, and I'll get that prescription in. I'm sorry, I forgot. So yesterday we went and uh, still no prescription. He forgot twice. Um, so anyway, yesterday afternoon, man, I was frustrated. We, I was at Walmart. We were waiting, and this was after several other frustrating parts of the day. And uh, I just in the middle of all that, you know what I should have done? I said, you know what? My hope was never in medication. M my trust was never completely that in, in this doctor, even though we love him. He's just a doctor. My hope has always been in the Lord. 
And why is my hope in him? Because I know his love. I know he loves me. I know in, in, from the Psalms, I know that it says, that it, it, David said, you take delight in me. I know he delights in me. I know he delights over my daughter, Jessica, just like I do, and even better. And in the end, that really matters. Take control of your thoughts. When you find yourself slipping down, and, and boy, it's kind of like a toilet, isn't it? You just start slipping down over and over again when frustration comes and frustration comes. But then at the last moment, I need you to reach up and grab hold and proclaim what's true. Amen? We got to go. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we just want to lift you up this morning and just tell you it does matter, Lord God, over and over again. It matters that you've given your life for us. It matters that you've shown us your great kindness. It matters that you've made atonement for our sin. It matters in every situation. It matters every single day and every single moment of every single day that you care for us and you've devoted yourself to us like a loving husband. And Lord, what can we do? We just rejoice in that fact that all the rest of this stuff is just noise. All the rest of this stuff is just, even though sometimes it's the stuff that breaks our heart, it wrenches our emotions, Lord God. But in the end, there's going to be an end to this, and you're going to answer every prayer we have. Every illness will be healed. Every failing of this body will be put to rest. Every difficulty that we have with other, other people, Lord, every one of those is going to come to an end, and we're going to, at that day, we're going to inherit from you glory. So, Father, thank you for all your work. Thank you, Father, we don't have to be just, just trapped in this prison of frustration. We don't have to be trapped in the prisons of fear. We don't be, have to be trapped in the prison of, of hopelessness. But, Lord, we always have hope. In the middle of the valley of our trouble, you have a door of hope for us. We thank you. We praise you this morning. It's in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for your prayers. We continue to pray for you guys and all the things we have going on. Lord bless you. Thank you. <laughs>